13 is where we'll be when we... In addition to completely forgetting that we take prayer requests on Wednesday night and dismissing the service, uh, I forgot to mention that <clears throat> no one had signed up for donuts and if anybody wanted to do that. So if you want to do it, you can just go now and get them. And <laughs> I'll go with you because evidently I'm not really sure what I'm, why I'm here and what my role is. So Genesis 13. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll just kind of walk through a little bit of this. Uh, but before I pray, let me just mention this. Uh, you know, I'd started, I, my original plan in Sunday school was to work through the first 11 chapters, and we've moved some into Abraham, and I, my plan is to continue uh, with Abraham. And, uh, but there, we won't be much longer on that. So as always, if there's a subject or a topic or a Bible book that interests you, um, if you'd put a note in my box, I will certainly take it under advisement. I have a couple of questions, uh, more questions that I uh, am going to deal with in Sunday school um, that have come to me on a variety of subjects, and we'll just tackle them, and then we'll move on from there. So let's go to the Lord. Father, always it is our hope that we would understand you and understand how great you are and all that you are doing in the world that we would read the Bible as your instruction to us, your testimony to your reality and to your work in the world and help it to influence how we think and how we act in this world. And we pray then from the life of Abraham that we would have great education about living a life of faith. And we pray your blessing to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse number 5 this morning. Um, you know, God has walked us through, so to speak, uh, the history of humanity. And sometimes the first 11 chapters of Genesis are called the history of the human race. And then with introduction of Abraham, the history of the Hebrew race. Um, and it really is, uh, I mean, I guess I find it, I don't, I don't say, want to say so much fascinating, but very interesting that very quickly in the Bible story, God turns his attention to one particular group of people um, and just virtually leaves the rest of humanity. Um, in fact, the, the Bible says that, that he, he left them to their own and uh, people were just worshiping whomever, doing whatever, and God's attention from the Bible standpoint is entirely upon this group of people that spring from Abraham, his people. And, and our connection to Abraham then is not physical ethnicity, we understand that, but spiritual ancestry. He is the, he is the prototype, so to speak, of faith. Um, and so when, when God appears to him, which we see in Genesis 11, uh, his response to God is positive, um, and what I mean by that is that he believes the Lord, and then what we have throughout the remainder of his life are the the dimensions of him living 
uh, a life of faith, the life of a believer, um, which has its own ups and downs. Uh, in last week, we looked at Genesis 12 through 7 through Genesis 13, 4, um, an episode highlighted by two incidents at the altar where there is an apparent, I don't know if lapse is the best word, but lapse is a word uh, to describe a weak moment in his faith when he left the land of promise to move to the land of Egypt for food and then returned to the altar. Uh, in this episode, beginning in verse number 5 and continuing on through Genesis chapter 13, um, we have really the opposite. We have much to commend his life. And for the very first time, not the last, but for the first time, we are introduced to, well, I mean, we already know that Lot is there, but for the first time, Lot functions as the foil to Abraham's life, as if God is highlighting to us two alternatives that we have. And we'll see that as we go. So let's just kind of walk through the story as we've been doing, and then we'll extract some of the, some of the spiritual meat from it. Um, verses 5 through 7 of chapter 13 are kind of getting the stage set for us so that we see all the, part, the parts in place. Lot also with, which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt then in the land. <clears throat> so verses 5 through 7 talk, explain to us that it is the collective wealth of Abraham and Lot that make their coexistence in the land impossible. And, and if you're thinking ahead, right, this is the land that a future generation will describe as flowing with milk and honey. And we just want to remember that it's not a problem of deficiency in the land that is causing the strife. It is the abundance that Abram and Lot have in the land that is causing strife. And so they are, they are arguing over what to do about the fact that they both have a lot of possessions. <clears throat> Abraham then, in verses 8 and 9, seeks to end the strife, to put an end to the strife. Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen. For we be brethren, is not the whole land before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And so there is the deliberate activity on the part of Abraham to put an end to the strife. And of course, the strife is primarily between their herdsmen, but it is certainly going to bleed over into some kind of tension, I would think, between Abraham and Lot. And so Abraham simply says to Lot, look, let's put an end to this, and right, all the land is before us, uh, you pick. And, and you pick the land that you want, and whichever land you don't want, then I will take the other land. Which brings us then to verses 10 and 11 to Lot's choice. Verse number 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, 
like the land of Egypt as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. So <clears throat> verses 10 and 11 are really critical and, and pivotal in understanding the story. Lot chooses the plain of Jordan, and he chooses the, lane of, the, the plain of Jordan because it is well watered. And then you're giving this little kind of heads up about what is to come. Um, and this is before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the land is described as it was before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Which if you look at a, at a satellite map today of this area down by the Dead Sea, it is just a barren wasteland. And there is virtually nothing there. Uh, but there was a time, according to the Bible, when that land was like the Garden of Eden. When it was lush and fruitful and fertile. So this was the land <clears throat> that Lot chose. And then verses 12 through 17 are the follow-up to that. Because again, we, we, right, we have two very wealthy relatives. And they are traveling together. And there is tension over the fact that they have so much that they cannot get along in the land. And so Abraham says, pick what you want and I'll take whatever you don't want. And Lot makes his choice Leaving Abram then, verse number 12, Abraham, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt on the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. So once again, we have, right, we kind of, the. it's not always true, but at this point in the narrative of Abraham, his, his life events seem to be bookended by altars. He built an altar, and he called upon the Lord, and there was a famine, and he left, and he returned to that altar, and from that altar, he and Lot traveled, and when he finishes up, he builds another altar. His, his life is bookended by these encounters with the Lord. <clears throat> um, so <clears throat> Abraham's portion is Canaan. And, and, you know, probably in the back of your Bible you have maps, and depending upon your inclinations and interests in these kinds of things, you can, we, could, we could literally spend our Sunday school time trying to track down where these places are or might have been, because some of them are just not known. 
and you know try to try to put all of these places um, on a map. I I'm just choosing not to do that. I don't want to get into all the to the ge geography and what might have been and who might have been where. Periodically, folks, the geography really matters, and it matters to this point. Abram is in the land of Canaan. Abram is in the land of promise. Lot is in the land of Sodom. And of course, we know that that will have huge consequences for him going forward. There is a commentary then, right? Commentary number two in the passage about Sodom, which I will argue in a couple of minutes, right? Is, is not incidental. These are not just insignificant markers. We are, we are being, we are being told about the way two men are navigating their lives. Um, what, how they are, how they are handling, really in some instances, the very same dilemma and, and how, they, how they are resolving that very same dilemma. Once the decision is made, in verses 14 through 17, God again appears to Abraham and he restates the promise of land and people. This is something that, again, happens periodically in the life of Abraham. Um, <clears throat> that after some incident in which there is activity on Abraham's part that is a reflection of the promise that God will come back and speak to him again and reiterate the promise, whether it be good or bad, by the way, folks, right? Whether, whether Abraham's conduct be commendable or questionable, right? the, the promise never goes away. The, the promise is always, right, it always comes back and it's always reiterated and occasionally there is new information given. And so God has always kept to his end of the bargain. This is one of the reasons we call the Abrahamic promise, or Abrahamic covenant, right, unconditional. It doesn't rely on anything that Abraham does. And this is one of the reasons that the Mosaic covenant, if I may digress, is conditional. Because the failure of Israel to keep up their end of the covenant is what got them into perpetual trouble with the Lord. Um, <clears throat> not that God is always happy with everything Abraham has done, but the covenant does not depend upon Abraham's obedience or conduct. The, the covenant went into force upon his belief in the covenant. So, so then the, the episode concludes. Folks, in verse number 18, with Abraham coming in land to the, to, the, to the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and he built there an altar unto the Lord. We would presume, but we're not told, that once again he called upon the name of the Lord, that he had um, a formal time of worship before the Lord and invoking the name of the Lord. <clears throat> right, so, so then again, right, the story is very simple and we, we would ask the question, what, what does it mean to us? Apart from being a, a historically accurate explanation of what happened, what, what is the takeaway for us? Well, so let me ask you, if, if you would please, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2.
And let's bring, we have the luxury of being able to go, you know, all the way through the Bible. And, and let's bring a little bit of New Testament perspective back to this Old Testament story. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter appeals to us as aliens and as travelers, as visitors, is really... I think maybe the best way to see it. We are, we are living here, but we are not from here. And this is never by us to be thought of as anything permanent. This is the perspective that we bring. And if you'll go back to Hebrews chapter 11, this is the perspective that Abraham has on his own life. Hebrews chapter 11. And verse number nine. Hebrews eleven nine. By faith he sojourned, talking about Abraham. He sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, as in an alien land dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So, just as if you travel, I mean, you know, you know, you know this. Um, Some of us have been going on a fishing trip to Canada for over 30 years now. So when, when we get to Canada, we are aliens. We are strangers. Canada is not our home. And we are pilgrims. We're just there on a journey. And we know that we are coming back to our home. And so, right, I mean, that's just a week's vacation and I'm just exaggerating, but but. We don't, we don't buy land in Canada. And we don't spend a lot of time getting all worked up about Canada. Because we're not Canadian. We're, we're American. And we're coming back to the United States, which is our home. Now, on a much larger scale and perspective, that is the way that we are supposed to be thinking about this world. We are here. And we certainly do live here. And we certainly do need places to live. We need, we need homes and we need jobs. That's the will of the Lord. But in a very real sense, we are just temporary residents. And that's not by virtue of the shortness of our lives. I mean, you could make the argument that every unbeliever is a temporary resident. They're going to live 80, 90, perhaps 100 years and they're going to die. But that's not the perspective. The perspective is that nothing permanent is for us found here. 
Nothing of ultimate value is discovered here. We are not, in a very real sense, from here. Now, if I may go off on another bit of a digression, this poses, folks, no end of challenges for us as we navigate this world. For instance, if what I've just said is true, if what we've just read is true, then what is the right relationship for us to have with civil government? What is the right position for us to take with reference to morality and governing? What should we desire of our government? To what extent should we be involved in shaping that government? These are, these are questions that believers don't all agree on and really struggle with. But we share, I hope, the same perspective. Right? So to go back to our, to our passage this morning, let's bring a little New Testament perspective to this Old Testament story. Here are two men who are facing really the same kind of dilemma. Lot is silent in the story. He doesn't talk. Abraham says, let's not fight about this. You pick where you want to live. I will take whatever else there is. And that is the way the scenario unfolds. Lot, right, and again, we get to go to the New Testament. If you want to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, Lot functions not just in this story, but in every place that we will see him. Lot functions not as the lost man. Lot is not set against Abraham as being the lost man. Abraham, or Lot is set against Abraham as being the believer whose orientation is not that of a pilgrim. The best description I've ever read of Lot is given by Kent Hughes in his really good, and it really is good. If you, if you buy commentaries, this would probably be the one I'd recommend on Genesis. Kent Hughes's commentary on Genesis. Kent Hughes says, Lot is a man who would choose heaven over hell, but not heaven over earth. So he would for sure rather go to heaven than he would go to hell but he would find it much more challenging to choose heaven over earth. He is absolutely a believer, and we know that because God declares him so in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. God delivered just, and that doesn't mean only lot, it means righteous lot. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So here is what we as New Testament people know about Old Testament Lot. He was a believer who tortured his soul by his love affair with Sodom. And I don't think there's any other way to describe it. Lot loved Sodom. 
There is no record that he participated physically in the sin of Sodom. But that is where he drew the line. Lot was up to his ears in Sodom's culture. He was a man who tortured himself by that relationship. So I would propose to you that while God holds up Abraham as the model of a pilgrim, that Lot stands to represent to us the man who is not a pilgrim. He is a true believer, but the entire orientation of his life is this world. To go back to Genesis chapter 10, folks, how did he make his decisions? His decisions were entirely worldly in nature. Verse number 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lot destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar, then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Is it possible, folks? Is it in any imaginable way possible that Abraham didn't know how bad Sodom was? I don't think you can make the argument that Abraham, I mean, that Lot was unaware of Sodom. I don't think that we can defend Lot as going, well, he just didn't really understand what he was doing. When there's commentary after commentary after commentary to this point in the text about how bad it is in Sodom, how evil the men are, Folks, there's, right, I mean, are there, are there any of us living right here in sheltered Redville, Omaha, Nebraska, that don't have at least some clue of how bad things are in cities like San Francisco and Portland, Oregon? Chicago, Illinois? I mean, we're aware of what's going on in the world, and I realize we have sources that Lot didn't have. But Lot was a man who made his choices on worldly considerations. And in fact, I would argue that chapter 13 and verse number 10 is making the point that Lot, in the knowledge of how bad Sodom was, chose good water instead of avoiding wicked men. And I would suggest, folks, that the narrator in this point in the story, certainly Moses, is giving us a somber heads up that Lot has pitched his tent in that direction. We know. He's, it's just a matter of time, right? He starts pitching his tent toward Sodom. It's just a matter of time before he's one of the leading officials in the city.
So it appears that Lot's primary consideration is his position in this world, in this life. That is what is primary to him. On the other hand, Abraham in the story stands as the epitome of the man who has chosen to live his life as a pilgrim. Within Abraham's culture, the choice of what land to pick was entirely his. He is the senior member of the family. This idea that he even says to Lot, you pick, is really pretty radical. And I think we could make the case, folks, is reflective of Abraham's faith. In other words, let's ask ourselves, right? We, we, we know, we're told what Lot is thinking. Right? Lot looks and he doesn't say to Uncle Abraham, you know what, sir? You're senior in, in, in you, you know, the promise went to you, so by all rights, you should have the best land. Lot looks and says, this is the, what I perceive to be the best land. I'm going to take the best land for me. But what's going through Abraham's mind? And we don't know, so I mean, we have to be very careful about putting words in his mouth But I would suggest that Abraham is completely confident that God will work in such a way to give him the land that he wants him to have. That there is a clear sense in which Abraham has given the decision to Lot and an implied sense in which Abraham has given the decision to the Lord. God had already promised the land to Abraham. And God will come back and reiterate that promise and expand upon it. We will get to that in chapter 15. So I would suggest, I couldn't fight with you about this, but I would suggest that the way the story is being told suggests to us that Abraham commits the decision visibly to Lot and invisibly to God. That he just really kind of casts himself Right? I mean, we might, you know, I mean, not we as believers, but, you know, to, to whatever happens, to chance, to, you know, to, to remove the decision from our hand. But the story brings the decision-making process under the purview of God. Lot makes his decision. Abraham is left with what remains. And in verse number 14, we have God's testimony to Abraham. In other words, folks, I don't think that Abraham trusted Lot's decision-making. I think he trusted the Lord's providential sovereignty. But again, the narrator doesn't tell us that. But I think we understand, folks, that in stories, and even in biblical stories, Sometimes we're expected to kind of be following the trajectory of what's being said and not said and understand what's going on here. Abraham is confident in the Lord. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, verse number 14, 
Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. So, so just as, right, Abraham's venture into the land of Egypt and the jeopardy to the promise that comes from it with Sarah being taken by Pharaoh. God is going to protect the covenant and he does that there by intervening in Pharaoh's family and bringing plagues and somehow explaining to Pharaoh what's going on. And God is still preserving the integrity of the promise. Lot has chosen some land. Now you look at the land that you have left. As far as you can see, this is land that I'm going to give you. And what you have then, folks, in verses 15 down through 17, right, is both a reiteration and an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. Go back, I mean, it's just a page or two in your Bibles, but look at Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now there's there's the core There's the seed of the covenant. If you go back now to chapter 13, verse number 14. Well, specifically verse number 15. Right? Look around, all that you can see. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. The idea forever is in perpetuity. I'm not trying to take anything away from the word, but the gist of the word is in perpetuity. Verse number 16, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. And we want, of course, to remember, we always remember at this point in the story, folks, Abraham doesn't have any children. Abraham doesn't have any children because Sarah is barren. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall all thy seed also be numbered. And then in verse number 17, right? God gives to Abraham just a little bit of of a taste of what has been promised. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. So he gets a little bit of sampling. And of course, we know from the New Testament, right, that nobody, he did not receive the promise in totality. And we'll get to this, we'll, we'll bring it all into conclusion to this. But of course, the seed, folks, Paul will make much of the fact that the seed is singular, that the seed is Christ that what is being promised here is 
the work of Christ and what Christ will do in his kingdom. I just want to close with this. and We'll be done a couple of minutes early again this morning. <clears throat> what, what does it mean for us to, to live as a pilgrim? That's, a, that's an orientation of the mind and of the heart more than of the substance. In other words, both Abraham and Lot needed a place to live. Both Abraham and Lot needed the produce of their herds and their flocks. They needed material substance to live. They needed a material place to stay. They had to live in one place or another, here, not there. Abraham was a pilgrim, but he wasn't a commuter. He didn't go back to heaven every night and then come down here and make a visible appearance in the morning. But the orientation of his life was that all things were oriented to God first, not oriented to this life first. Right? So, so that's what the Lord wants from us. It's, it's not that he demands of us, and we, we, we talked about this um, in the life of Paul uh, in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. It's not that God demands from us a life of poverty It is not that God just wants us to have the worst of jobs and to live in the worst of homes and to live in the worst of climates, which some would argue this Omaha. Uh, But that God wants us to live in orientation to him, to be oriented to him, not just to this earth. That's the challenge that confronts us, right? Right? And, 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 and Peter is very helpful, right? I beg you, I beg you to live this way because you're going to have to do it at war with the lusts of your own soul because there, there are parts of us that we just love this world and it's very easy to be oriented to how much more money, how much more prestige, how much more fun, but that's not how we're supposed to be oriented as believers. So, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be. An easy solution to that, there isn't one. It is an ongoing warfare. Okay, I'm going to stop there, and we'll be back at 11 o'clock. Thank you.